Chapter 11 of The Wolf Leader by Alexander Dumas. Translated by Alfred Allenson, 1852 to 1929. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter 11 David and Goliath. After walking the whole length of the village, they stopped before an imposing-looking house at the junction of the roads leading to Longpre and Heramont. As they neared the house, the little host, with all the gallantry of a prude chevalier, went on ahead, mounted the flight of five or six steps with an agility which one could not have expected, and, by dint of standing on tiptoe, managed to reach the bell with the tips of his fingers. It should be added that, having once got hold of it, he gave it a pull which unmistakably announced the return of the master. It was, in short, no ordinary return, but a triumphal one, for the bailiff was bringing home a guest. A maid, neatly dressed in her best clothes, opened the door. The bailiff gave her an order in a low voice, and Thibault, whose adoration of beautiful women did not prevent him from liking a good dinner, gathered that these few whispered words referred to the menu which Perina was to prepare. Then, turning round, his host addressed Thibault. "'Welcome, my dear guest, to the house of bailiff Nepomucena Magloire.' Thibault politely allowed Madame to pass in before him, and was then introduced into the drawing-room. But the shoemaker now made a slip. Unaccustomed as yet to luxury, the man of the forest was not adroit enough to hide the admiration which he felt on beholding the bailiff's home. For the first time in his life he found himself in the midst of damask curtains and gilt armchairs. He had not imagined that any one save the king, or at least his highness the Duke of Orleans, had curtains and armchairs of this magnificence. He was unconscious that all the while Madame Magloire was closely watching him, and that his simple astonishment and delight did not escape her detective eye. However, she appeared now, after mature reflection, to look with greater favour on the guest whom her husband had imposed upon her, and endeavoured to soften for him the glances of her dark eyes. But her affability did not go so far as to lead her to comply with the request of Monsieur Magloire, who begged her to add to the favour and bouquet of the champagne by pouring it out herself for her guest. Notwithstanding the entreaties of her august husband, the bailiff's wife refused, and under the pretext of fatigue from her walk, she retired to her own room. Before leaving the room, however, she expressed a hope to Thibault that, as she owed him some explanation, he would not forget the way to Erneville, ending her speech with a smile which displayed a row of charming teeth. Thibault responded with so much lively pleasure in his voice that it rendered any roughness of speech less noticeable, swearing that he would sooner lose the power to eat and drink than the remembrance of a lady who was as courteous as she was beautiful. Madame Magloire gave him a curtsy which would have made her known as the bailiff's wife a mile off, and left the room. She had hardly closed the door behind her when Monsieur Magloire went through a pirouette in her honour, which, though less light, was not less significant than a caper a schoolboy executes when once he has got rid of his master. "'Ah, my dear friend,' he said, "'now that we are no longer hampered by a woman's presence, we will have a good go at the wine.' those women they are delightful at mass or at a ball but at table heaven defend me there is nobody like the men what do you say old fellow perina now came in to receive her master's orders as to what wine she was to bring up but the gay little man was far too fastidious a judge of wines to trust a woman with such a commission as this indeed women never show that reverential respect for certain old bottles which is their due nor that delicacy of touch with which they love to be handled 
He drew Perina down as if to whisper something in her ear, instead of which he gave a good sound kiss to the cheek which was still young and fresh, and which did not blush sufficiently to lead to the belief that the kiss was a novelty to it. "'Well, sir,' said the girl, laughing, "'what is it?' "'This is it, Perinetta, my love,' said the bailiff, "'that I alone know the good brands, and as they are many in number, you might get lost among them, and so I am going to the cellar myself.' And the good man disappeared, trundling off on his little legs, cheerful, alert, and fantastic as those Nuremberg toys mounted on a stand, which you wind up with a key, and which once set going turn round and round, or go first one way and then the other, till the spring has run down, the only difference being that this dear little man seemed wound up by the hand of God himself, and gave no sign of ever coming to a standstill. Thibault was left alone. He rubbed his hands together, congratulating himself on having chanced upon such a well-to-do house, with such a beautiful wife and such an amiable husband for host and hostess. Five minutes later, the door again opened, and in came the bailiff with a bottle in either hand and one under each arm. The two under his arms were bottles of sparkling sillery of the first quality, which, not being injured by shaking, were safe to be carried in a horizontal position. The two which he carried in his hands, and which he held with a respectful care, which was a pleasure to behold, were one a bottle of very old Chambertin, the other a bottle of Hermitage. The supper hour had now come, for it must be remembered that at the period of which we are writing, dinner was at midday and supper at six. Moreover, it had already been dark for some time before six o'clock in this month of January, and whether it be six or twelve o'clock at night, if one has to eat one's meal by candle or lamplight, it always seems like supper. The bailiff put the bottles tenderly down on the table and rang the bell. Perinetta came in. "'When will the table be ready for us, my pretty?' asked Magloire. "'Whenever Monsieur pleases,' replied Perina. "'I know Monsieur does not like waiting, so I always have everything ready in good time.' "'Go and ask Madame, then, if she is not coming. Tell her, Perina, that we do not wish to sit down without her.' Perina left the room. "'We may as well go into the dining-room to wait,' said the little host. "'You must be hungry, my dear friend, and when I am hungry I like to feed my eyes before I feed my stomach.' "'You seem to me to be a fine gourmand, you,' said Thibault. "'Epicure, epicure, not gourmand.' You must not confuse the two things. I go first, but only in order to show you the way. And so saying, Monsieur Magloire led his guest into the dining-room. Ah! he exclaimed gaily as he went in, patting his corporation. Tell me now, do you not think this girl of mine is a capital cook, fit to serve a cardinal? Just look now at this little supper she has spread for us, quite a simple one, and yet it pleases me more, I am sure, than would have Belshazzar's feast. "'On my honour, bailiff,' said Thibault, "'you are right. "'It is a sight to rejoice one's heart,' "'and Thibault's eyes began to shine like carbuncles. "'And yet it was, as the bailiff described it, "'quite an unpretentious little supper, "'but withal so appetizing to look upon "'that it was quite surprising. "'At one end of the table was a fine carp, "'boiled in vinegar and herbs, "'with the rose served on either side of it "'on a layer of parsley dotted about with cut carrots.' The opposite end was occupied by a boar-ham, mellow-flavored and deliciously reposing on a dish of spinach, which lay like a green islet surrounded by an ocean of gravy. A delicate game-pie, made of two partridges only, 
of which the heads appeared above the upper crust as if ready to attack one another with their beaks was placed in the middle of the table while the intervening spaces were covered with side dishes holding slices of arles sausage pieces of tunny fish swimming in beautiful green oil from provence anchovies sliced and arranged in all kinds of strange and fantastic patterns on a white and yellow bed of chopped eggs and pats of butter that could only have been churned that very day as accessories to these were two or three sorts of cheese chosen from among those of which the chief quality is to provoke thirst some rhymes biscuits of delightful crispness and pears just fit to eat showing that the master himself had taken the trouble to preserve them and to turn them about on the storeroom shelf thibault was so taken up by the contemplation of this little amateur supper that he scarcely heard the message which perina brought back from her mistress who sent word that she had a sick headache and begged to make her excuses to her guest with the hope that she might have the pleasure of entertaining him when he next came the little man gave visible signs of rejoicing on hearing his wife's answer breathed loudly and clapped his hands exclaiming she has a headache she has a headache come along then sit down sit down and thereupon besides the two bottles of old macon which had already been respectively placed within reach of the host and guest as van ordinaire between the hors d'oeuvres and the dessert plates he introduced the four other bottles which he had just brought up from the cellar madame magloire had i think acted not unwisely in refusing to sup with these stalwart champions of the table for such was their hunger and thirst that half the carp and the two bottles of wine disappeared without a word passing between them except such exclamations as good fish isn't it capital fine wine isn't it excellent the carp and the macon being consumed they passed on to the game pie and the chambertin and now their tongues began to be unloosed especially the bailiffs by the time half the game pie and the first bottle of chambertin were finished thibault knew the history of nepomucen magloire not a very complicated one it must be confessed monsieur magloire was son to a church ornament manufacturer who had worked for the chapel belonging to his highness the duke of orleans the latter in his religious zeal having a burning desire to obtain pictures by albano and titian for the sum of four to five thousand francs chrysostom magloire had placed his son nepomucena magloire as head cook with louis's son his highness the duke of orleans the young man had from infancy almost manifested a decided taste for cooking he had been especially attached to the castle at villers cotterets and for thirty years presided over his highness's dinners the latter introducing him to his friends as a thorough artist and from time to time sending for him to come upstairs to talk over culinary matters with marshal richelieu when fifty-five years of age magloire found himself so rounded in bulk that it was only with some difficulty he could get through the narrow doors of the passages and offices fearing to be caught some day like the weasel of the fable he asked permission to resign his post the duke consented and not without regret but with less regret than he would have felt at any other time for he had just married madame de montesson and it was only rarely now that he visited his castle at villers cotterets his highness had fine old-fashioned ideas as regards superannuated retainers he therefore sent for magloire and asked him how much he had been able to save while in his service magloire replied that he was happily able to retire with a competence the prince however insisted upon knowing the exact amount of his little fortune and magloire confessed to an income of nine thousand livres a man who has provided me with such a good table for thirty years said the prince 
should have enough to live well upon himself for the remainder of his life and he made up the income to twelve thousand so that magloire might have a thousand livres a month to spend added to this he allowed him to choose furniture for the whole of his house from his own old lumber room and thence came the damask curtains and gilt armchairs which although just a little bit faded and worn had nevertheless preserved that appearance of grandeur which had made such an impression on thibault by the time the whole of the first partridge was finished and half the second bottle had been drunk thibault knew that madame magloire was the host's fourth wife a fact which seemed in his own eyes to add a good foot or two to his height he had also ascertained that he had married her not for her fortune but for her beauty having always had as great a predilection for pretty faces and beautiful statues as for good wines and appetizing victuals and monsieur magloire further stated with no signs of faltering that old as he was if his wife were to die he should have no fear in entering on a fifth marriage as he now passed from the chambertin to the hermitage which he alternated with the sillery monsieur magloire began to speak of his wife's qualities she was not the personification of docility no quite the reverse she was somewhat opposed to her husband's admiration for the various wines of france and did everything she could even using physical force to prevent his too frequent visits to the cellar while for one who believed in living without ceremony she on her part was too fond of dress too much given to elaborate headgears english laces and such like gewgaws which women make part of their arsenal she would gladly have turned the twelve hogsheads of wine which formed the staple of her husband's cellar into lace for her arms and ribbons for her throat if monsieur magloire had been the man to allow this metamorphosis but with this exception there was not a virtue which susanna did not possess and these virtues of hers if the bailiff was to be believed were carried on so perfectly shaped a pair of legs that if by any misfortune she were to lose one it would be quite impossible throughout the district to find another that would match the leg that remained the good man was like a regular whale blowing out self-satisfaction from all his air-holes as the former does sea-water but even before all these hidden perfections of his wife had been revealed to him by the bailiff like a modern king candales ready to confide in a modern gigas her beauty had already made such a deep impression on the shoemaker that as we have seen he could do nothing but think of it in silence as he walked beside her and since he had been at table he had continued to dream about it listening to his host eating the while of course without answering as monsieur magloire delighted to have such an accommodating audience poured forth his tales linked one to another like a necklace of beads but the worthy bailiff having made a second excursion to the cellar and this second excursion having produced as the saying is a little knot at the tip of his tongue he began to be rather less appreciative of the rare quality which was required in his disciples by pythagans he therefore gave thibault to understand that he had now said all that he wished to tell him concerning himself and his wife and that it was thibault's turn to give him some information as regards his own circumstances the amiable little man adding that wishing often to visit him he wished to know more about him thibault felt that it was very necessary to disguise the truth and accordingly gave himself out as a man living at ease in the country on the revenues of two farms and of a hundred acres of land situated near vertifoya there was he continued a splendid warren on these hundred acres with a wonderful supply of red and fallow deer boars partridges pheasants and hares of which the bailiff should have some to taste 
the bailiff was astonished and delighted as we have seen by the menu for his table he was fond of venison and he was carried away with joy at the thought of obtaining his game without having recourse to the poachers and through the channel of this new friendship and now the last drop of the seventh bottle having been scrupulously divided between the two glasses they decided that it was time to stop the rosy champagne prime vintage of eye and the last bottle emptied had brought nepomucena magloire's habitual good nature to the level of tender affection he was charmed with his new friend who tossed off his bottle in almost as good a style as he did himself he addressed him as his bosom friend he embraced him he made him promise that there should be a morrow to their pleasant entertainment he stood a second time on tiptoe to give him a parting hug as he accompanied him to the door which thibault on his part bending down received with the best grace in the world the church clock of erneville was striking midnight as the door closed behind the shoemaker the fumes of the heady wine he had been drinking had begun to give him a feeling of oppression before leaving the house but it was worse when he got into the open air he staggered overcome with giddiness and went and leant with his back against a wall what followed next was as vague and mysterious to him as the phantasmagoria of a dream above his head about six or eight feet from the ground was a window which as he moved to lean against the wall had appeared to him to be lighted although the light was shaded by double curtains he had hardly taken up his position against the wall when he thought he heard it open it was he imagined the worthy bailiff unwilling to part with him without sending him a last farewell and he tried to step forward so as to do honour to this gracious intention but his attempt was unavailing at first he thought he was stuck to the wall like a branch of ivy but he was soon disabused of this idea he felt a heavy weight planted first on the right shoulder and then on the left which made his knees give way so that he slid down the wall as if to seat himself this manoeuvre on thibault's part appeared to be just what the individual who was making use of him as a ladder wished him to do for we can no longer hide the fact that the weight so felt was that of a man as thibault made his forced genuflection the man was also lowered that's right levaillier that's right he said so and with this last word he jumped to the ground while overhead was heard the sound of a window being shut thibault had sense enough to understand two things first that he was mistaken for someone called levaillier who was probably asleep somewhere about the premises secondly that his shoulders had just served some lover as a climbing ladder both of which things caused thibault an undefined sense of humiliation accordingly he seized hold mechanically of some floating piece of stuff which he took to be the lover's cloak and with the persistency of a drunken man continued to hang on to it what are you doing that for you scoundrel asked a voice which did not seem altogether unfamiliar to the shoemaker one would think you were afraid of losing me most certainly i am afraid of losing you replied thibault because i wish to know who it is has the impertinence to use my shoulders for a ladder phew said the unknown it's not you then levaillet no it is not replied thibault well whether it is you or not you i thank you how thank you ah i dare say thank you indeed you think the matter is going to rest like that do you i had counted upon it being so certainly then you counted without your host now you blackguard leave go of me you are drunk drunk what do you mean we only drank seven bottles between us and the bailiff had a good four to his share leave go of me you drunkard do you hear drunkard 
You call me a drunkard, a drunkard for having drunk three bottles of wine? I don't call you a drunkard because you drank three bottles of wine, but because you let yourself get tipsy over those three unfortunate bottles. And with a gesture of commiseration and trying for the third time to release his cloak, the unknown continued, Now then, are you going to let go my cloak or not, you idiot? Thibault was at all times touchy as to the way people addressed him, but in his present state of mind, his susceptibility amounted to extreme irritation. By the devil, he exclaimed, let me tell you, my fine sir, that the only idiot here is the man who gives insults in return for the services of which he has made use, and seeing that is so, I do not know what prevents me planting my fist in the middle of your face. This menace was scarcely out of his mouth, when as instantly as a cannon goes off once the flame of the match has touched the powder, the blow with which Thibault had threatened his unknown adversary came full against his own cheek. "'Take that, you beast!' said the voice, which brought back to Thibault certain recollections in connection with the blow he received. "'I am a good Jew, you see, and pay you back your money before weighing your coin.' Thibault's answer was a blow in the chest. It was well directed, and Thibault felt inwardly pleased with it himself, but it had no more effect on his antagonist than the fillip from a child's finger would have on an oak tree. It was returned by a second blow of the fist which so far exceeded the former in the force with which it was delivered, that Thibault felt certain if the giant's strength went on increasing in the same ratio, that a third of the kind would level him with the ground. But the very violence of his blow brought disaster on Thibault's unknown assailant. The latter had fallen on to one knee, and doing so, his hand, touching the ground, came in contact with a stone. Rising in fury to his feet again, with the stone in his hand, he flung it at his enemy's head. The colossal figure uttered a sound like the bellowing of an ox, turned round on himself, and then, like an oak tree cut off by the roots, fell his whole length on the ground and lay there insensible. Not knowing whether he had killed or only wounded his adversary, Thibault took to his heels and fled, not even turning to look behind him. End of chapter 11 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia